Welcome back to another episode. My name is George Brooks. And on today's podcast, we had the pleasure of talking to Mariah Hay. She is the vice president of product at Help Scout and the former senior vice president, head of practices and vice president of product at Pluralsight. She's a leader in digital product development and human-centered design. And we talked a lot about human-centered design today on the podcast. And yeah, first, how it connects to our teams getting closer to the humans they're building products for. But in order to have a culture that supports that, you almost have to practice human-centered design on your teams as well. I think you're going to love this conversation, so let's jump right in. Mariah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to hear more about you. Why don't, why don't you start and kick off? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, thanks so much. And thanks for having me, George. Well, um, my name is Mariah Hay, and I'm a product practitioner. I actually started my career in industrial design, physical product development, um, but I moved into the digital product space probably about a decade ago, about the same time the B2C app it was starting to get its feet under it and all of the great design skills that people use in physical product were suddenly needed in the digital space. Yes. And so that's been my journey. I, I, I think it sounds like you and I maybe kind of got into it at the same time. I remember the app store coming out and I was like, oh, yes. But I love the ID background that in, you know, that, that design background with physical products, I think it has such an incredible translation to user experience and user interface design, everything else. Tell me what where, where are you at now as far as, um, I know you've kind of been shifting from, a, from one organization to another. What, where are you at now? What's your role? So right now I'm the VP of product for a company called Help Scout. And Help Scout is this great little company. It's been around for almost a decade. Yeah. It's fully remote and they create a customer support software for small and medium businesses. Love it. Love it. So I know when I, what I've seen of your content in the world is that you have an extreme passion for human centered design. Tell me first off why, and maybe you could give me for those who are not, are not familiar with human centered design. What, what's a basic definition of, um, of that ideology. If you almost, you want to put it that way. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. Um, human centered design. Well, I'd have to say that my lifelong love affair with that actually began when I started my industrial design master's program at Savannah College of Art and Design. And the program that they had there, unlike a lot of programs at other universities for industrial design, it was less engineering focused and more like philosophy, design, mm -hmm. yeah. practice focused. They still had the engineering stuff, but that wasn't the core of what they did. And I guess, you know, it being a design school, that's why. Makes sense. And so the cool thing I learned in that program was the best way to design solutions for humans is to put the human at the center of what you're designing. So crazy, crazy idea. I yeah. know, right? It's, it's crazy. It is absolutely bonkers. So for example, if you're designing a chair, uh -huh. you want to understand um, what the person is doing in that chair, where the chair is in the environment, like how big the person is, all of the great contextual information that help you design the chair that will actually meet that human's needs. So that mm -hmm. is the human and you're centering design around it, human-centered design. Now, fast forward that to, um, to today, you th in modern software development, I think sadly, um, 
humans are kind of an afterthought sometimes. We've got yeah. these pressures with venture capital and people just trying to like list out requ requirements for users, mm -hmm. but they're not actually having these, these contextual conversations with people, with the end users. And so you end up with products that are not meeting all of the needs. It's like designing a chair without understanding who's gonna sit in it. And so my whole goal and my whole career now for the last seven or eight years in product leadership is build teams that can get close to the customer and deliver the best value to them possible without getting pushed around by the fact that um, you're trying to hit short-term goals for the company. Yeah. And those two things are intention, right? I mean, because it is hard. There is a desire to deliver, but also if you're not delivering something that's useful and usable and actually providing value, what's the point? Yeah, no point. There is short-term value maybe you can make off of that, but yeah. it's actually, I would assert it's bad for the business because the attention spans of users, particularly in software are so short and people mm. have more and more change and technology is way less sticky than it was you know, five, 10, 15 years ago from a, a B2B business to business software standpoint. So yep. for example, like what Help Scout makes, anybody could leave us tomorrow for a competitor and it's not, it's not a big thing. They just turn our, our turn somebody else's on, right. done. So we have to make a, uh, a software that is, that people want to use that is delightful to them, um, that is meeting all of their use cases. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think you're absolutely right. If you think about so much of software was like these large scale, especially enterprise B2B style software, it was like these, it was all about licenses, right? And so you bought into a license that locked you in for a year, two years, five years, sometimes, you know, like these crazy long packages where it was like the pain of leaving isn't worth the value that I'd probably get out of a better product. And now you have that ability to say, well, it's month to month. Maybe you did a year long contract, but probably there's an easy way, easy way out of that and you can leave easily. So you're always looking for what's the more valuable solution. You mentioned teams, and I know that's a, a piece of human-centered design, but what does it look like for a team to practice human-centered design? Maybe not just one particular person. This is one of my favorite topics actually, because you can have this philosophy of human-centered design, but unless you have the right people with the right skills and the right set of practices and align all three things, you're not actually gonna be able to practice human-centered design. Mm. Um, for me, what human-centered design looks like is a set of practices where you have a cross-functional team, usually cross-functional team includes, you know, product manager, product designer, engineers. Sometimes those roles get more specific. Sometimes you have a specific type yeah. of engineering role, like machine learning engineer, or you might have like a very specific researcher um, if you're doing something with data. But in general, those, those are kind of the cross-functional folks and all of their, how they practice their craft between those different disciplines all has to align in a way that allows them to go get close to the user, talk to the user, understand the user's problems, um, ship things. And I like single piece workflow you know, small, reliable bite-sized chunks so yep. that you can get a feedback loop going and like rinse and repeat. And you have to iterate your way into that product. I mean, it literally is like, you know, the old adage of a flywheel, it is truly saying we've got to have like a, something small to get this going before we can actually turn anything that's going to create larger scale value. And I love, I love that. I mean, it's effectively, that's what Crema does. So our organization, we deploy cross-functional product teams. And so um, one of our big passions is saying, yeah, I know you just want to hire a dev because everybody just needs a dev, but 
you're going to miss out on the perspective of a bunch of other people that actually represent or work better or know how to talk to a, a human in a different way. Um, what are what are some of the challenges that you see though that teams run up against when they try to do this small continuous um, value loop? Yeah. So first of all, you have to have a leadership team that buys in to human-centered design. If that's yeah. not there, it's very difficult for a team to effectively align everything else. The everything mm -hmm. else being the like hiring the actual people that are on the team with those complementary skill sets that has to align. And then you have to have people bought into the practices of how the team builds, which for me, that means how do I get the team closest to the customer so they can see and solve the problems? Not how do I, the leader, articulate to the team what I want them to build. Uh -huh. You really have to change that mindset quite a bit. And then last but not least, making sure that the tools and infrastructure architecturally are set up to be able to do deployments in the way that you would want to in order to allow the team the power to, to do that. It's, it's that and then like one of the, the problems or gotchas that I see um, companies as they start to, to grow um, encounter is you come to a place where teams are tripping over each other because they're architecturally dependent. Yeah, of and course. so, yeah. And so whenever you have like lots of teams that are having to try to coordinate across to build one thing, they're no longer doing it together. So overcoming that um, is really important. How do you see teams do that? It's a conversation we have a lot because as our, as our client changed from being the, the first little small startups that were like, Hey, everyone's at the table right now. And we're all solving the problem right now together to at scale, you've got multiple teams working on different initiatives, maybe all towards an aligned organizational goal, but how do you do that? How do you, how does that cross team work get done? Yeah. That's when leadership becomes incredibly important because the leaders are the ones that can solve those problems, not the mm -hmm. teams. The yeah. leader's whole goal, and it's funny when we think about cross-functional teams and getting them close to the users, when you get large enough, you have a cross-functional leadership team. Mm -hmm. So how do you work together as a leadership team to solve these problems? How do you align the architecture with the practices, with the design? Those are one of the, the things that um, I work on. And how do you continue to evolve the organizational design so that teams always have what they need and they are always at the center of what the leaders are designing. So the design work of, of organizations is very much, I, I use all my human-centered design skills that I used to do when I was an individual contributor to build stuff for users. Now I do it to support teams and to redesign companies every you know, 12 to 18 months. Because if your company's growing, you really have to change it that often. I, I was having a conversation with another agency owner recently and they're, they were smaller, you know, they're, um, gosh, I think he said he's maybe five people, you know, just like this tight little awesome creative team. And, and I remember being that size and I said, for me, it had to pivot away from me being a product strategist or product designer, then turn product strategist, whatever you want to call that title, product manager, product strategist. And when my role became, when, it, when I realized all of a sudden, oh, I own a company, <laughs> that's a thing. And I now have to treat the organization like I do products. Or how do I get close to it? How do I understand the value the org is bringing to the world? And then how do I think about the cross-functional team that needs to touch all these pieces that I can't, I mean, we've got almost 50 people on staff. And so now I can't 
I don't can't touch everything like I used to be able to. And I now will become a bottleneck. And so I think a lot of what you're talking about or like a lot of what I hear is it's so easy for a leader or even a particular role, a practitioner role to become siloed and or a bottleneck. And how do you, or do you have any tips or tricks or processes that you put in place to make sure that you're kind of um, monitoring for that, where you, you get a sense of, uh, this is this is maybe getting derailed a bit? Yeah. I think it all starts with trying on the different practices that you need in order to run the operation of mm. what I call the experience org. Yeah. I, the last couple of places I've worked, we've called, we've referred to kind of your engineering, product management, product design, anybody that works on the product as your experience org. Yep. Because you're building experiences. And so things that I look for are, you know, um, are we planning effectively? So we use objectives and key results, OKRs, yep. Yep. to make sure that teams are getting really clear on what outcomes we're trying to create for the customer, not telling them what to build, but telling them like what result looks like. And then how do you measure that you're actually hitting that result? And are they going in and like the practice, it's funny, I kind of brought this to help scout and our teams are doing it for the second quarter. Oh, this good, quarter, good. And they're yeah. already getting better at it, but you go in it. and you you can look like, are teams able to set their own, like how are they at that practice and how much do they struggle with it and how can we help that? Okay, cool, once they have that, we can start to align. Um, other things, like another challenge that we were tackling is um, how do we limit work in progress? Because when you're doing too many things at once as a team, nothing mm -hmm. gets done very quickly. Everything gets done very slowly and it's very easy to derail the team. And the next thing you know, you're doing waterfall and you didn't even mean to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so these are the kinds of things that I keep an eye on as a leader, because those mm -hmm. are the things that you can help coach a team around. And if they're struggling, you can help get, get into the weeds with them and, and give them them tools to do this stuff. So that's kind of, that's my, I don't know, barometer, if you will. I think it's really good. I think I, you mentioned that when they actually, when you start to see them set their own goals. And I think for a lot of teams, that's really difficult. Um, I put this thing, it's actually got shared more than some of my other content. And it was basically this idea or not, if you're not rep, uh, understanding that your job is to learn, Right, you you may have lots of skills and made lots of things that you're contributing, but if your your job is to learn, which means you need to set a goal towards what you need to know. Where's the gap between what I know now and what I need to know, right? And if if my job is to learn, then I shouldn't expect that someone's going to tell me how I have to contribute. And so if they they have to own that, and that's really hard because I think if you haven't had a leader that's allowed you to do that, you really become dependent on someone just handing you work to be done. Yeah. Um, I totally so, agree. It's yeah. scary too. I think that's the thing, like getting somebody to own that, like mm -hmm. everybody screams that they want autonomy in their job, but they don't actually, that's right. <laughs> it's that's easier so to just be like, just tell me what to do and uh -huh. I'll go do it. And then yeah. like you pay me and we'll be done with it, but yeah. it doesn't have a lot of satisfaction in it. And if you can right. get over the fear or even the stigma, like, so engineering roles historically have been judged by how much code they ship. Of course. And if you're taking time out and to talk to users, well, guess what you're not doing? You're That's not right. shipping code. And so right. there's a stigma like, oh gosh, am I not doing my job because I'm not shipping code? I'm talking to this user instead. That's a, that's a distraction for me to talk to them. I shouldn't do that. I should just ask the product manager to tell me 
tell me exactly mm -hmm. what to go build. And then you go down the rabbit hole of like just crazy deep product requirement documents and then teams arguing over was it in the document, wasn't it in the document. And so what I'm trying to do is get all the people to rally around the problem and see it together. And then you don't need all that stuff. That I think it's, you're talking about time management too, because that's, that's a hard thing to say. It's like doing a retrospective. You know, everybody goes, ah, I don't have time for that. We got to keep moving forward. We're not, I don't have time to look back. And I would say a retrospective is one of the most powerful tools a, a cross-functional team can have, because if you're not able to look back and say, how can we work better together? Um, you're not going to be able to move forward together effectively. How do you, how do you help teams to realize how that time is best utilized? I'd say that having teams look at their own data mm. is the best behavior changer you can mm -hmm. see. So simply by the fact that we're doing these OKRs and one of our OKR practices is not only setting them, but every week the team gets together and look at it. Every week the team gets together and goes, how is this going? How do we think it's going? How do you think it's going? Like, are we hitting roadblocks? Like, is this actually not gonna get done this quarter and why not? And is that okay? And, and being able to put that data in front of them so they can look at their own progress and then see it week over week. That yeah. is the strongest behavioral change tool that I've been able to see. And it's, it's not just OKRs. This is why developer productivity tools, um, mm -hmm. while they have a dirty name, because all of this stuff can be weaponized against people. Um, but when it's not weaponized, it's truly a beautiful thing, like engineers to like look at the data of how the team is shipping together and go, is that how we want it to be? Is that good? Is that not great? Do we want to change things and like repeat and repeat? And that's how teams can help like fine tune their own sets of practices together as a group. So good. I wish, man, we see it a lot that that is, that is a tension, right? It is so hard to see the value in working that way until you start doing it. You almost have to taste it, you know? Um, and then what you do, you're like, I think I like this flavor. It actually does, it does, you know what I mean? Like it does feel right to actually have that autonomy, get that value out of it, be able to, to see the data myself and not expect that somebody's just gonna hand me the work to do. What, what are some of the risks of not doing it this way? Well, you can just build the wrong thing for people. Hmm. Like you can waste your time and energy and that's the ultimate like shame is time is, is, is the one commodity that we all have like, yep. and we can use it to actually make change or we can spin our wheels or we can build things that aren't as effective. And I know as an individual contributor, like you, you get real energized when you see problems being solved for people that you're trying to solve problems for rather than just shipping another thing, checking the box. All right, what are we doing tomorrow? So mm -hmm. I think wasting time and energy and brain power. We have such a powerful community of thinkers and creators and to waste that collective time is just such a shame. Yes, a hundred percent. Now you said something earlier where you said that some tools, processes, approaches can be weaponized. That's a pretty, that's a heavy word. Tell me what you mean by that. I'm kind of curious right now. Yes. So the company I worked at before my current company was this uh, great learning company called Plural Site. Mm -hmm. And at what one point, I guess it was a couple of years ago, they decided to acquire a company called Get Prime. And Get Prime, what they made was a tool that could look at, you know, Git commits and other types of data that engineers generate, how they work with their JIRA board, whatever. Yeah, yeah. 
and aggregate all that data and just kind of show them how they're doing. And our developers like pretty much flipped a collective table because they're like, no, that data, like people use that data for the wrong reasons. It blocks people from, um, you know, advancing in their careers and they get penalized for not doing certain oh, things. Wow. And, and people will try to game those numbers because when those numbers are the goal, right. everybody will be working to do anything they can to get that number to change, not actually be doing their job. And that's where the weaponization can come in. Like for better, for worse, companies ever since the 1980s have moved towards this incredible metrics-driven focus and have mm -hmm. relied less on professional acumen and, and experience. Yeah. And you have to have a balance. There's this great book called, um, oh gosh, it's a book about metrics. I'll have to look it up and send it to you later. And yeah, then please you can do. Yeah, pop yeah. it on the podcast. Um, but it, it talks all about how this has come to be within modern uh, business culture, this, this cult of metrics. Mm -hmm. And so because we over rotate on that, um, it can be used for all kinds of purposes that it's not intended to be used and it creates unintended consequences equally. Okay. So then maybe I'll throw it back then. When you think about your OKRs, how do you think about your key results? Because that's kind of a metric, oftentimes a metric driven it can be not, I guess not, it doesn't have to be, at least the ones that I've seen have often been like, okay, well, let's, we want to measure towards a certain outcome. How do you, how, how do you split that? That is a, that is a tension of like, what's, what's a, what is it just a metric for number's sake? So now we're just trying to hit, could be a vanity metric or it could be a useful metric, who knows? Um, and what's actually an, a useful key result? Yeah. I think the biggest difference with the way that at least my team is using OKRs is the KRs are really on the team level. The team yeah. sets the KR, they decide what they think it could be. Nothing set in stone, they can change it. It is just there to simply get them to think about what success looks like. What behavior do they wanna see of a customer mm. using the software that, that it would indicate that the product is creating that outcome that you right. think it should. Right. Now I have seen them kind of roll up into leadership and then those get reported on and board meetings and all kinds yeah, of, of stuff. Course, but, of course. but I think if you're a leader, you have to contextualize this, this uh, data, this metrics. And that's actually what we ended up doing with um, GitPrime uh, when Pluralsight acquired them. Our engineering org decided to create this kind of playbook around, well, we're going to use this tool. It's our own tool, but mm -hmm. we, they sell it of course. And here's how we think about all of these metrics. So it's rules of the road around that. It was the, it was some contextualization yeah. um, that maybe this metrics shouldn't move, or if it jumps, it could mean this thing is happening and we should go investigate it to find out why. It might but be it, an indicator, but not necessarily a driver. Yes. And if you think about things as indicators instead of drivers, then they're much more effective tools, in my opinion. I think that's that's really important. I think a lot of people would probably treat most of their metrics, if not all of their metrics, as if they're drivers. Yes. Um, and we 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 see that. I mean, working with a this innovation team, which has been by organizational drivers, or you're working with a startup, says, "Hey, my investors want to see," you know, um, that's that's hard. It's a hard mind shift. I just remember that book title. It's called oh, the, Tyr the Tyranny of Metrics. 
That's okay. I, I actually, one of my product managers has talked about this book. And I think, I think it is a balance, right? And nothing's black and white, especially in product development or in business or in life or whatever. But it is, how do you hold these things? Because they're oftentimes in a, in a paradox or a spectrum of, okay, metrics are good. They have a place, but what are they being used for? Or even what's the tool being used for? I mean, these are all questions that more people should be asking instead of just like, okay, cool. I'm going to build the thing. Yeah. She told me to, you know, totally. And that's, it's funny. One of the, another thing I've rubbed up against that's been pretty prickly in my career is the reason why engineers and other people don't like these metrics is it gets tied to like compensation mm. per performance, personal performance. When you know, if you're an engineer in a team, you literally have not that you don't control a thing. The yep. scope isn't clear. It's, it's muddy. You could be working on a different product than somebody else that is more or, or less effective. The market could change. COVID could happen. And so when you tie those metrics to performance and people's compensation, like that's where it gets real, it, it, things can go sideways really fast. So, you know, as a leader on teams like this, I always uh, work very closely with the people organization to explain mm -hmm. Cross-functionality is important. Psychological safety is important. We're not going to measure people's individual performance. Like, sure, you've got once in a while somebody struggles, but sure. if you're a leader worth their salt, you can kind of suss that out and work yeah. with them and yeah. fix it. But then to like, there's so many of these programs at companies where they're like, oh, you know, how well did you do? One out of five. And it's like, because of things like recency bias, like leaders can't tell you that. Nobody like... They're, they're either doing good and you give them a raise or they're struggling and you're already in the middle of helping them. But these yeah. like crazy exercises that these large companies go through in the, uh, to, to grade people with metrics, that's, that's the real um, danger. Another waste of time. <laughs> we, we moved towards <clears throat> over the last few years, we've kind of, and we, uh, we did that because that's kind of like what the books are written about. It's like, oh, cool. You do an end of year review and it's, and we have review cycles. I more so just to give us an excuse to get together and talk. But the the thing that we've been really pushing our teams to move towards is a continuous feedback loops. So how are you, and maybe you can speak to this, having worked with multiple cross-functional teams in, in different organizations, how do you see feedback being done well across these teams where they do know what's going on, there is alignment, decisions are being made, people are being called to accountability. How, how is that feedback done well, given and received well? People have to feel safe enough to be able to speak candidly and kindly to each other. Mm. And that's not an easy thing uh, to achieve, but all of these other things that we're talking about, like clarity around philosophy and how we operate and practices and like trust that you've got the right skills on the team and nobody's being blocked and you're not being judged through these metrics. Like if, if leaders create a space that is, is truly safe, um, then I think it's a lot easier to have those conversations. Um, and, and people don't feel they're not worried about getting penalized. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. There's, um, there's a group that we're working with called future work design are actually coming in to help scout and understand uh, how well we're doing at creating inclusion and belonging, and then how we might change that because how, how your systems are set up for how you support your company and your mm -hmm. people 
directly like take all of the messiness out in culture and society and like systematizes it. And mm -hmm. we're just not aware of like how that actually shows up. And I am just fascinated to learn from them. We're, we're going on this journey. We're just beginning it now. And so I'll have to report back and tell you like what I learned from it, but I would love I, to know. I'm sure even the most like awake company to these things still takes this because we're all in the, the soup together, proverbially speaking. Uh, it's so true. And, and we're all coming at, at it with different perspectives and experiences and motivations and nightmares and fears and everything else, you know, like it's all part of this, I mean, going back to human centered design, it's all a part of this human experience. Totally. And I think that's when you're, I love the parallels for going from when we started at product, right? Like how do we use human centered design to think about the products that we build, the effectiveness of those products? Are they serving customers in a real way all the way to the only way we're actually going to do that is if we're actually thinking about our teams in a similar way. Um, I love that posture. What are some of the mindsets that you, I mean, we, we have a framework that we kind of have coined, but though it's beg, borrowed and stolen from everybody else, um, where we talk about postures, disciplines, and structures. And structures are uh, pur purpose and you know, resources and things like that. Disciplines are obvious. It's the activities, the things that you do, the things that you set rhythms and set expectations and accountability around. And then there's postures which are kind of like your mindsets. And I like the word posture because it goes beyond just like how I'm thinking and it's actually how I'm kind of carrying myself. What are, what do you see as some of the postures or mindsets or ways of thinking that are absolutely crucial in order to, to work like this? Yes. I'm trying to think, what are the postures? I think people need to lead with curiosity because I think one of the things that we do as humans is if there's, we're, we're only ever seeing like a couple pieces of a big picture and we like to fill the gaps in because mm -hmm. we're, we're problem solvers. So we'll tell ourselves narratives around what's really happening. And, and typically that's not the case or we'll, right. we'll right. exaggerate things or we will diminish things. We do all kinds of like terrible behaviors around this. And so whenever teams are, are struggling or, or an individual doesn't feel like there's, if there's something that feels icky, like go lead with curiosity and figure out what the whole picture is and, and what is happening for real. Um, and to, instead of creating narratives, I think that's a big one. I think having to being committed to something bigger than yourself, mm. rather than it's not about me, 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 I, 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 it is like our team, our customers, our company. And yeah, good. I can, I say that. And I, I, I almost hesitate to say it because I know there's like these very culty tech cultures that are out there that are like, everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid and we Let's have change the world. That. Everybody's yeah. going to change the world. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, this is really, I'm trying to stay away from hyperbole on it, but um, being committed to a bigger thing. Mm. And then um, I think, I don't know, those are probably the two postures that I think can really start to change the tide. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think we talk a lot about both purpose and that purpose doesn't always have to be just on the, the next sprint, but um, kind of looking up and exploring what's the bigger, purpose. Um, take that to whatever horizon you want to take it to. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's, it's a really powerful place to be, albeit it's one that just has to be reminded all the time. And then curiosity is the leader to empathy. 
Like we can't be emp empathetic if we're not curious to see, I wonder why they see the world that way, you know? Yeah. Um, totally. So I love, I love those postures. That's, those are, those are on the list. We have four kind of core principle postures that we talk about. So we, for us, it's um, curiosity, humility, um, which I think you have to be humble, but in order to be willing to learn, um, but you still have to have confidence, which I think is that ability to kind of say like, I'm confident that we're going to, we're, we are, we could change the world. Who knows, you know? Um, that you can take on a big challenge and then resilience because sometimes you have to sit in it because like change doesn't happen overnight, unfortunately. And so you have to sit in that resilience to just be like, Hmm, it's going to take, this is hurts and I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, you, you're asking me to do OKR have to come up with them. I don't want to do that. You know? Um, so I, I love, I love that mentality. Okay. So I want to round us out a little bit because I'm fascinated by learning. Now, this is why I did a podcast. This is why I, probably why I started a company. It's why I had children because they see the world in a whole different way. I mean, I just love learning. Where do you go as you're exploring human-centered design or you know, team building or product in general or just life, I guess? Where, where are you learning? Where's, where's your favorite source of learning these days? It's probably split between having conversations with people like you, just industry people. I yeah. love talking shop. Talking shop is like the my best. number one favorite pastime. Yep. Get me in a room and I discover that I have like some kind of thread in common with somebody around our industry. I will just do nothing but talk about that. And mm -hmm. kind of have, um, so we just moved here to Tybee Island, um, my partner Joe and I, and we found out our next door neighbors. The guy, he graduated from the same program that I did in industrial design at SCAD and he works at Gulfstream and has all this like my my best friend from college from college that I lived with for five years he's her leader and I'm like what it's such a small world and so now whenever we go and like like we'll kind of do a, a couple's date night yeah um <laughs> The two, I really have to struggle, like not just to talk shop, like oh, the whole man. time I'm with the me worst. or Brian. Ugh. So talking shop is probably my favorite thing. And then I have a, a serious um, book buying addiction. And so I, yeah, I, I see you identify. I've got, me. I'm looking around my desk right now. I've got <laughs> stacks. So I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. So those I, are kind of my two main things. I love it. I love, it. I, I have to guard myself as well. My wife is not in this industry. Uh, a lot of our friends are not in this industry, but my business partner was my best friend before we became, became business partners. And so every time we all get together, it's hard for him and I, not, not even because we want to talk about work. We just want to nerd out on like this thing that we're really passionate about. Um, so I, I totally get that. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I, I love your posture as you're kind of enter, entering into how do, how do we serve people well? How do we make great products that maybe can help people flourish? And um, I've been following you for a little bit, so it was really fun to, a chance to, to get to, to chat with you. And um, I hope that maybe as the world goes on, and whether it's, it's Help Scout or something else, um, that we do really get to focus back in on humans. How can we get closer to people so we can make products that really help them to thrive? That's, that's what I'm hoping. I think you're doing that. So thank you. Thank you for doing that work. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to me talk about it. Thanks for coming on the show as well. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with support from Gabby Caton, Julie Branson, and Alexa Alfonso. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. 
Fuel the Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.